0: One of the things we did at the start, I thought that was incredibly interesting was we had this thing called the MARACA model, and this is an acronym, it's M-A-R-A-C-A, MARACA. It stands for Market Availability, Real-Time Analytics and Customer Addressability. And We took 200 plus countries of the world and pulled a bunch of data and weighted and scored them because the the thing, I think, before you get into, you know, putting your foot in the accelerator and, and executing is, wait, like, where are we going to play? Like, we have to select where we're going to make the investment and where we'll prioritise you. Obviously should not try to be in all countries at once, uh, all at the same time, that you have got to have some prioritisation.
1: This is Inside HubSpot, where we take you behind the scenes to uncover the tactics and strategies that grew HubSpot to a $2 billion company with more than 180,000 customers globally. I'm your host, Cat Warboys, and throughout the show, we'll hear from HubSpotters, experts in their field on how we pioneered the Inbound methodology built an award-winning culture, uncovered new channels for growth, created a blog with more than 11 million subscribers, and much, much more. Whether you're a startup or a scale-up, a marketer or the CEO, you'll learn from our triumphs and our missteps that can be applied to help you grow better. Today, I am joined by Christian Kinnear. HubSpot's chief sales officer who leads the company's global sales strategy and organization across North America, LATAM, EMEA, and JPAC. Christian joined HubSpot in 2015 as the director of sales for Europe, quickly going on to take the role of SVP of international sales and managing director for HubSpot EMEA. Under his leadership, HubSpot expanded its footprint into the UK and I, Germany and France and Italy, just to name a few. It was in 2022 that Christian was offered the very prestigious role of Chief Sales Officer. Prior to HubSpot, Christian led sales teams in international markets at both Google and Oracle. So it's safe to say he knows his stuff when it comes to sales and the world of SaaS pretty well. In this episode, we'll dive into how he rolled out HubSpot's global operating leadership model, as well as the frameworks and processes. We'll learn about how HubSpot approaches inbound sales, and how we foster a culture of well-being amongst HubSpot's high-performing sales teams. If you're a leader looking to expand your international sales operation, this episode is for you. Let's get into it. Welcome to the show, Christian.
0: Thank you, Kat. I'm thrilled to be here. Really looking forward to the chat today. Uh,
1: Likewise. Christian, I met you the other day at our annual event, Inbound, and I discovered something new about you, which I didn't think would happen because we've known each other. We've been at HubSpot for about the same amount of time, just over Mm -hmm. seven years. You're coming up to eight, I think. Uh, and I found out you had an interesting career before you fell into sales, as you put it. I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you to tell us a little bit about that.
0: Wow, what a start. Uh, great. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I need to get better at that phrase of this is off the record, don't I, when, when we chat at, at, our, at our Inbound <laughs> event. Um, yeah. It uh, Quirky, I guess. Yeah. I was. Um, I left school. I was sort of figuring out my college journey. And something that had been in personal interest for a while was archaeology, which is... Very, very different to where I've ended up today. Um, I had an interest in it. Um, I was trying to make a, a terrible joke that digging holes in the ground is something I fell into, uh, also. <laughs> so, I don't know if we can use that as a, a pseudo dad joke, but I uh, loved it. I ended up, um, spent quite a bit of time in France actually, up in Brittany in, in northern France, and uh, was figuring out there was a, a Roman and Celtic uh settlements and things that we were uncovering there, and spent a whole bunch of time there. Absolutely loved it, but um. I guess the reality of uh, archaeology uh, doesn't uh, pay particularly well. It's more of a uh, a passion than anything else. So I ended up uh, in the sales sales arena since, which we can we can talk a bit more about today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're very lucky that you did. Um, and by the way, dad jokes are very much welcome on the show. So you can keep them coming if you feel <laughs> feel inclined to do so. <laughs> Christian, I think you'd agree with me on this when I say that HubSpot is most known for its inbound methodology, something that is pretty well documented and known by marketers. Uh, but what we don't hear as often about is the perspective from our sales organization and how this inbound methodology really impacted our sales reps and our sales process. You know, you came from Oracle and Google. i just love to know, you know, what struck you about um, the sales process? How did it impact reps was it really that different from where you'd been before?
0: Yeah, it, it was. It was. It was completely different, and and I think that would be broadly true of pretty much every software and tech company, uh, not just the two you mentioned. But the one of the things that brought me to HubSpot in the first place was I was investigating how do companies solve this this challenge of uh, trying to find really good fit companies who have strong intent and trying to feed your sales team with as many of them as you can uh, to be most productive and. I came across this thing called Inbound and this company called HubSpot uh, through my research and loved the content. There was so much interesting stuff and it was it challenged the status quo, challenged the kind of the, the assumed traditional narrative of how you demand generate, how you how you attract and bring people, bring customers to you, which sort of for, for most of us, that felt like the, the unattainable or the nirvana of how do you get people to come to you or than you having to go to them. And the more I read, the more I was kind of drawn in um, to this concept and, and having been inside HubSpot now and, and being the beneficiary of inbound demand, I mean, it's 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 incredible. They, those two major things that every salesperson, every sales leader and every professional on the planet would love is, can you find me companies, organizations, contacts who are really good fits for what we do, our, our product and service, and have some like medium to strong intent they are at that part of their process, their buying process where they're, they're interested in engaging. And that's those two things are the magic of inbound. You have people who are engaging with content. They're re- essentially filtering themselves through the process as to as the more they find out, the more they're engaged, saying yes, this product solution is a good fit for me. And they're getting through the process, and the further through they go, the better fit they are. So by the time they become qualified, they're a really really good fit. At least they've they've self-defined that they are a good fit. So you have that first big important box ticked. And then the intent of they're interacting with um, different pieces of content um, that's serving each part of their journey. So they get to a point where they've matured in their thinking, they've understood a bunch of the questions, they understand their options, they probably better understand the problem they're trying to solve. And they're starting to understand how company X, in this case us, uh, how we could help them solve that challenge that they have. And there's lots and lots of research out there. I think I've seen lots of things that says that about 60% of their journey, their buying journey is done by the time they get to sales. So from a sales person and sales leader's point of view, um, having more than half of the process completed by the time they get to you, it's incredibly valuable. You think of the internal desire around efficiencies and things of uh, having a quicker sales process that's uh, able to to turn around faster. People have already done a lot of the, the work is incredible. But then apart from the internal, the, the big external that we can talk about is um, the the buyer now, increasingly the modern buyer, wants that digital and human experience. They want to be able to self-serve. That's more and more important to them. Uh, they don't necessarily want to be forced on a human-only interaction uh, way of accessing information on what they're trying to do. And inbound very much leans into the flexibility of you can choose either or. You can flex, you can you can change lanes between those two experiences. So I think inbound is ahead of its time. Um and I think it's really serving that modern buyer and, and buyer preference that we have in the market today.
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. I think we were definitely ahead of the curve there. But it's interesting, you know, you're touching on the self-serve and the the freemium model there really as well. It's just an evolution of how we've seen inbound, right? It used to be content to help buyers educate themselves. And when we say content, we're really talking about blogs and um, educational resources. Now that is extended to tools. And that has just been mm. such a game changer for our sales team in the process, right? You and I have been at you know HubSpot for over seven years now. And in that time alone, a lot has changed when it comes to our product. like a, a crazy mm. amount has changed. What started out really as a marketing automation tool has now developed into what six hubs or, or products? So for those of uh, those who are listening who are not familiar with HubSpot, those hubs are our marketing hub, sales, service, ops, uh, CMS, and uh, commerce hub. I'd love your perspective, Christian. You know on how it has been. What it's been like to be able to keep up with that changing complexity as we evolved our product, as we released more for the sales team, you know, the challenges, the complexities, the new personas that our sales teams were having to learn. Um, and what's some of the motions that really helped us adapt to that and keep up pace with the product in the sales process?
0: Yeah, yeah, it, it has been quite a journey when you you summarize uh, several years into that the last couple of minutes, think, wow, yeah, a lot has <laughs> changed for sure. Yeah, yeah, it makes you remember um, it. I think, in terms of structural, there's for a lot of sales people and folks who need to be customer facing and position products. You, I think you need a mental model, firstly, that helps you figure out how do I tell the story of our products? Because inevitably, you know, any buyer and customer and user, they typically aren't all that interest in you mechanically rattling through the names of your products and and and, the, and the, uh, trying to figure out, do they recognize the brand or the, the the feature function of the product set that you have? That's not how people think. Um, I think what's been really interesting for us and uh, something that, that I think works well has been the idea of articulating, how does a buyer user think of this product set? And they think of a system of record, the, the CRM, the underlying CRM is the system of record that most people can get a, a quick sense of, yes, I. I've seen or used something where I keep a record of my customers and prospects. So I have a, a pseudo database or a system of record. In our case, that's our CRM. And then if you want to fill that CRM with a bunch of really good contacts of good fit and good intent we just talked about, you can plug our Marketing Hub product on top, which will feed your CRM to fill it with more of those good fit and good intent contacts. And then at some point, if you already have those, uh, or if you, if you use Marketing Hub to fill it with those, and you want to effectively turn those prospects into customers, you can plug Sales Hub on top, have your sales team interact with your system record and contacts in a more efficient way. Once they become customers, you want to keep them happy, you want to retain those customers, keep them uh, as as spending customers, and maybe expand their spend, or for other people, you can buy Service Hub. So you can understand this Lego concept of system record on top of which you place these other components, depending on which use case you have, which area you're trying to address, one, two, or three of those, OpsHub then makes it all run in a more efficient way for larger, more complex users. Um, and we have CMS for the front end, if you want to fit the front end to, to feed your, your digital online presence to be more interactive with your CRM. So CMS front end, CRM back end. And as you tell that, people think, oh, that's pretty straightforward. I, I get that. And somewhere along the way, just commerce wrapped around all of this. So as you want to, presume you want to make money if you're in business, as most of your listeners will, getting paid is, is important. So commerce is, is an important layer onto that as well. So when you tell that, I think as for a new salesperson coming in, for uh, salespeople who were adding more products to, if they're already in seat, and then equally for customers and our our partner network, we will sell through the ability to play to create that mental model of that's effectively how these pieces fit together. Um, people understand that quite well. That's uh, it's intuitive. The the other major thing in terms of hands on people really getting familiar with what our products do and being able to articulate those and demonstrate the product. A a huge decision we had years ago was the, the, the kind of fork in the road of do you buy or build to expand your product offering? And we made a choice that was contrary to kind of thinking in the market at the time. Most people acquired other companies. They would acquire software and other intellectual property and and customer bases and so on to try to uh, to purchase that growth and number needed we went the opposite way as halligan said we zagged when others zigged um but we did zag and we said we're going to stay the course and we'll build it ourselves and that was centered on the user we said if you purchase a bunch of other products inevitably at some point the user experience is going to suffer because you will acquire disparate different technologies and you will then do your best to try and help them look and feel like they are all the same tech, but that's never really possible. You can never really get that truly uh, similar tech look and feel uh, and the user and the operator of the product will, will suffer. So we said we'd stay where we are. So the benefit now is my reps can go in. It is the exact same technology for any of the things I just mentioned. It's exactly the same tech. It is all built on the same stack. It looks the same, it feels the same, it acts the same it's super easy for someone to navigate through saying all of this is familiar and we're just accessing different parts of a product if you're expanding usage by adding on the other hubs it's another drop down and away you go it it's really as simple as that so i think for our our teams to get their heads around the product it it feels very easy to be able to to expand and i will say though the the reality of the downside or the the real talk version here is still a lot it's you know when you decide to go east west you know, in terms of product offering you add more products and services to whatever your listeners are or whatever business they're in today When you add more things there's a cognitive load and i think that's important to be aware of that because people and again depending on how you go to market who you sell through it there can be a point beyond which people aren't able to absorb as much information as quickly so several products learning two products is doable learning four and five becomes a different dynamic and you have to i think a little bit reset your, your planning models too, to say, if I used to be able to ramp a new hired salesperson to fully productive within three or four months, that maybe now takes six months. And we have to just factor that in, and that's a cost or a tax of being more complex. But um, I think all the things we've done to date were, in terms of knowledge tests, you asked a question about uh, how do we keep them upskilled and so on. I think it's there is product training the, I would say, The product training side of things that we do is reverse engineered. And by that I mean, we start with the end state saying, the goal, there is only one goal, is that people can um, adequately demonstrate their knowledge of the product to a customer, their customer ready. And you come back from there saying, well then before you're customer ready, you need to demonstrate, which is some form of certification, stand and deliver. You need to be able to role play and and model out the thing you're going to do with the customer. before which you have to be trained, before which you have to uh, go through some other self-serve content. So we reverse back out to ensure that everybody is, is, and we, we try to stagger those, we try to sequence those so they don't all stack on top of each other to be overwhelming. So we're, we're mindful there too.
1: Yeah, it's a really good point. Many people I think would say, well, why didn't you go down the specialization or the product specialization route, right? But to your earlier point, actually, in fact, I think the more educated our buyers have become, They're familiar with the tools because they've tested them. It's actually meant we haven't had to go down that route, right? Because they're not looking for that the same sort of um, knowledge from reps anymore. And so, in some ways, the more educated buyer has lightened the load or just changed what the role of the salesperson is, which has meant we haven't had to go down that road. And as you say, there's pros and cons but as we like to tell the reps right they they own their destiny when it comes to the levers they have the products they own their customer base and that's a really interesting shift International growth, I want to move into now because it has become rather unintentionally a bit of a theme on this show. We've had Susie, who you know, VP of International Marketing. We just had uh, G2 talking about the process of how we think about selecting new markets to go into. Uh, And now yourself, where you obviously have a very impressive resume of experience in growing uh, in international markets. When you became the Chief Sales Officer, one of the first things I noticed that you did was to publish the details of an org change that you wanted to make. Uh, you called it a global first org structure. Can you tell us why this was so high on your radar and so important for you to do as one of your first moves uh, as chief sales officer?
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're very kind in your intro. Um, I think there was a few things. There's uh, When I took the role, we were gosh, 14 or 15 years into our journey. So we were some ways along the track and we had, I think, built up some debt along the way, uh, some organizational debt. Having worked in EMEA originally and then uh, running international, so which is effectively everything outside North America, I had a front row seat of what it's like in international and how things look and feel and, and how what was working, what wasn't. Um, I think there was a couple of things. The the org structure piece where we had again a, a bit of a legacy, uh, very understandable. And actually, I, I would do it similarly again if, if it was me doing it again. For we had US was the, the largest market and, and still is standalone is still the, the largest market for us. That's where we, we were born. Um and then there was US and then everything else. The rest of the world was sort of outside of that. And it creates this two-tier dynamic of there's one enormous market and then there's all these other markets and how you think about that and the the signaling you give to the business about investment and strategy and plans and ambitions you in unintentionally create different tierings and different sort of class of of countries and, and category of countries so it was important to me to level those up and say we have three theaters of operation we have the americas which is canada north america so all, all of us canada and then all of latin america we have EMEA and jpac and to position those three as three peer level um, theaters and we have three peer level leaders and um, we structure them similarly and the expectation then changes which in part you know for our international uh, parts of business was um there isn't a a big and little brother or a big little sibling kind of relationship here any longer and um, each of you needs to stand alone see the opportunity in your market and address the potential of your market as fast as you possibly can to the best of your your ability um and that's nobody is has higher or lower expectation we expect the same from everybody leveled sort of the, the expectation playing field i think within those there was a lot of this debt i described operationally speaking where we had Leaned heavily into autonomy, and again, I think this happens when you go globally, where you have international markets, where people will say we're going to expand into country X. They say France or Germany or uh, Japan or wherever it might be, and we sort of lean a little too heavily at times into the differences of that market and say, well, it's 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 France or it's Germany, so it's very very different to the US, and that's true. There's the broadly that that's obviously a logically uh, fair statement. But in business and sales and functional departments like mine, over 20 plus years of international selling, I've realized they're much more similar than different. Markets are much, much more similar. And how you run an operating system is different from your go-to market. And I separated those two things to give some clarity that said, you have an underlying operating system, which I'm defining as the way you do your job. So how do you set up the systems? How do you um, how do you access leads in the system? What are the the process you'll follow, the sales methodology you have, what's expected of you, which reports you use in the system to track your progress, what kind of governance and cadence and meeting structures we use. Like there's lots of things, the plumbing and wiring of how to do how to do the job at salesperson level and, and manager levels too. And those are similar, like there, there isn't a vastly different way of doing those between the different countries. So we began to say part of the challenge, what we had walked ourselves into was we ended up... Um, creating all these different ways of doing things just because we could. And we kind of allowed, and even in some, some ways encouraged people to try to do, new, do, new, do different things. So we had you know, 50 ways of doing the same thing. And when you have 50 ways of doing the same thing, your operations team can't support it because it's done differently everywhere. And your enablement team can't train on it because it's done differently everywhere. So then we had my team were complaining, saying, nobody's supporting us, like we're not getting help from anybody. And those teams are complaining to me, saying, Your team are all doing it differently everywhere, like it's chaos. So, and both were kind of right, obviously. So the the call was to say, we we paused and stopped and said, Let's standardize. And we had a lot of meetings, discussion around it. I kind of plan, mapped out my intent, uh, the thought process, kind of, and that mental model I was using. And folks got it and said there was sort of a penny drop moment for most who thought this actually makes tons of sense. How did we not see this? This is a blind spot for us. And we we move forward into that place where changing all that was, was really, really important. It's helped, I think, take the weight off people, of that global complexity people often are worried about. You can have a standard operating system, which you can manage and maintain some way centrally, which is the bulk of the lift. And then all you really need to layer on top is this go-to-market piece with... Uh, good strong local folks who can add the the flavor of now you know how to do your job there's probably a, an italian way or a french or german or or japanese way of starting a conversation in your will rely on you in fact it's it's required that is your job is to find the last mile way to bring the message to market so those are all interesting things um i think probably in uh, you can stop me if i'm if i'm going too far back in time here but uh one of the um one of the the, the biggest things that I think we did in global, and this was a few years, this is as I joined, so again, about seven or eight years ago now, for folks that may be earlier in the journey and your listeners who are maybe earlier on thinking of beginning that journey, we weren't in the position, obviously, back then that we are in now. We've matured and learned a bunch, but one of the things we did at the start I thought that was incredibly interesting was we had this thing called the Maraca model. I don't know if you remember this or Maraca score. And this is a, an acronym it's m-a-r-a-c-a maraca and it's it stands for market availability real-time analytics and customer addressability that's the A C A. those are the, the three parts and it was a score and we took 200 plus countries of the world and pulled a bunch of data and waited and scored them because the the thing i think before you get into you know putting your foot in the accelerator and, and executing is wait like where are we going to play like what, we have to select where we're going to make the investment and where we'll prioritize you. Obviously, should not try to be in all countries at once, uh, all at the same time. You've got to have some prioritization. So we we did that. Uh, the the market availability in our world, and again, everybody can adjust this themselves, but I think it's an interesting framework, was just figuring out the, the shape of the market. So in our world, uh, certainly eight years ago, in these uh, expansion plays, we were looking for SMBs. So it was the number of SMBs uh, the population of SMBs in various markets was an interesting kind of metric for us. The more SMBs, the better, the higher score you got. Uh, so that was kind of a, a bit of an addressable market component, if you like. The real-time analytics was about uh, whether we had partners. So the partner network based in the country, they got some some points for that. Existing customers who we could use as case studies and kind of proof points in country and for, for credibility. And then whether we're getting what volume of leads we're getting through the inbound. Back to the start of our conversation, what the the lead volume looked like. So we could run our own internal data points and analytics to see how we might rate a, a market. And then the last, which is kind of really kind of thought, I thought was really fascinating, was the customer addressability, which was. Three parts to that one was the economic score. So certain different countries are performing differently economically. Some are on the up, upturn. Some are on a downturn. So depending where they were, they got different ratings. Um, ease of doing business. There is a lot of these ease of doing business scores. So uh, World Bank and a bunch of others. You can get that. That'll tell you how easy it is to do business in all the different countries of the world. Um, and then English proficiency was the last one we used because we were going on a journey, which was going to be English centric, certainly to begin with. And I think many, many of your listeners would probably agree that you you probably will start off uh, English only uh, and try to see how many markets you can access using just English before you go non-English. And we rated those and a blend of all those generated a score. And we then stack ranked every country on the planet and started the top and worked our way down. And I think that was that was foundational for us. That was really, really important that we, we, we took that step first.
1: You had a really not controversial point, but so far on the show from our guests, we've heard you know, localize, localize, market differences. And I don't think you're saying that that's not the case, but it's not the case in every aspect of what we're doing when we move internationally. And really it's that opsy side, right, that you were talking about the bones, the processes, um, which, yeah, I, I think is a really interesting take we haven't heard yet. Um, and then the moving into market, I was literally going to ask you, any tips for our listeners?
0: <laughs> so you covered, Great minds.
1: <laughs> yeah, you covered that off uh, really, really well. So, um, yeah, so that sort of ranking for market, um, did, we, we didn't go always straight in with reps though, right? Like there was some selling from Boston, which is where our head office is. And like, what would they, what, what were those days like? It's like getting, getting a team of reps who were ready, willing, I guess, to work some awkward hours and, and, and really start to test out that side from a, you know, you got, you have the data perspective for sure. You've got, you know, right. Our town is looking good. It's not complex. You know, we're going into another English speaking market, but then the conversations that you can end up having on the phone. A whole, a different side of that. Like, can you can you touch on that a little bit?
0: Yeah, and and I think that again was was smart, and and I would recommend the same for anyone listening. Is that entering a market and, and placing a footprint in, be it uh, an a legal entity or an office or something else, it's a big undertaking. That's a that's a big decision, and it's it's a large outlay, you know. And and again, for international markets, you you need to obviously um, make sure you do your due diligence. Some markets that you enter. If you chose to withdraw quickly, you may still be liable for corporate tax and other things for a period afterwards. So it isn't quite as simple as just dip your toe and, and step back out. In some cases, but I think selling from distance, you know, and, and again, our model uh, was somewhat similar to a lot of our, our peers. Was we decided to move outside of the US? We had just one office. It was Cambridge outside of Boston, and the second location was Dublin. That was the the second office where where I joined the Dublin team. And Dublin was selling to all of EMEA, all of Europe, Middle East, Africa uh, from Dublin. We had no other entities or we'd no HubSpotters anywhere else in Europe uh, other than Dublin in Ireland. So, and that was smart. I think again, the the precursor of US reps testing, seeing does this approach work? Uh, does this product have value to people? Is there awareness and is there enough knowledge and savviness of digital marketing in the countries that we think there should be? And you can test those things from distance. It's, It it, it is, I think, to your point, you need to find some folks who are willing to work unusual hours. um, But beyond that, there isn't any other real outlay. There's no other extension of risk for your business. Uh, And then Dublin was the next phase of, okay, let's do it again, but do it from Dublin in Ireland. And the question then became, we're going to start thinking about the nuances of each market. And we need folks who are German nationals, French nationals, Dutch and and so on, um, because there is a difference and and to pick up the point you had a moment ago of other people talking about localization I think we're saying the same thing there's probably two different f- phrases the that sort of last mile go to market piece that I described that layers on top you for sure need to localize that and and again not localize not in the term of just translation language translation but but tweaking your message for your audience knowing that different buyers in different countries expect a different type of engagement and you know using a a one-size-fits-all and an Irish style in parts of JPEG would not work at all. Uh, so you need to adapt, you need to be conscious. So I think we, we tested those in Dublin. Um, and then ultimately, you know, our our journey became that we we were a victim of our success, which is kind of a nice complaint to have, that we, we began to have in those languages where we needed somebody from uh, France and Germany initially, um, we, we outgrew ourselves and we needed to put a footprint into that market um, I'd say as well and again depending on on the the business that some of your listeners have one thing we did we moved I talked about that east-west earlier on of the products we added on to the different hubs we also went to what we describe as north-south so we uh, we built out our high-end and low-end products and we, we built kind of a an amazing starter product uh, for people who want to get going uh, and begin scaling and then a really incredible enterprise product at the high end and um, but building out that higher end product it does bring you into what we internally as you know call up markets so or some of those more sophisticated use cases and that sort of pulls you into market as well because if if you choose to do that for higher uh, average selling prices better productivity returns and numbers and lifetime value of of customers you're probably going to need a different engagement model i think the the one of selling from distance um is amazing. I'm a huge fan of what we do and companies like us do. I think there's there's that next phase where people may say they prefer and need someone to come on site and, and come in and sit down with them, work through their architecture, unpack their, their, their issues and challenges, and then be with them through the entirety of their journey. And that's, in our case, our partner network. Uh, we've got incredible partners. Um, and we have some folks then based in the countries so who are able to do some of that work with people too. So uh, being present in country is sort of a, a next phase of evolution, depending on if you're moving up into more sophisticated use cases.
1: Yeah, I think uh, it's, it depends, right? <laughs> That's the <laughs> mm-hmm. It depends. It depends yep. on what you've got to work with, your go-to-market strategies available to you, your audience. But certainly the theme seems to be a very thoughtful approach. Rarely is it all guns blazing and we've picked a market. Now there's an office with 50 staff and, you know, We want to tell the world about it, so thoughtful Mm -hmm. and slow and steady, I think. Switching the gears just ever so slightly, uh, AI. <laughs> you and I ah. both uh were at inbound, <laughs> where that was the topic of conversation. Um, what's your immediate reaction? What's your immediate emotional response when you think about uh AI and how this is gonna um, impact uh sales?
0: I'm excited. I'm I'm really like I am yeah, I'm I'm like a kid at Christmas. <laughs> and I, I think I, I met you, as we said, at inbound, the I've been to six inbounds. Uh, I COVID somewhere in the middle of those, um, and typically there's so much going on. By the end of the week, it's a it's a full week of uh, days and evenings. You're normally you know getting running out of out of energy towards the end of week and feeling like okay, I'm ready for for the plane home. Uh, it's been like incredible. I was still bouncing around on Friday. I still had the AI um, yep. in my system of just <laughs> what's happening and. It is. It's really, really exciting, and I think that extends to uh, my sales team, the partner network, everybody else. Where there's been, I think, a continued evolution of of the CRM space that we're in, which you know it's been phenomenal. That it's night and day of what's available today and how the kind of solutions people can access and things they can do today compared to ten years ago. Um, AI is about to just change all that again in a massive way, and that's really, really exciting. I think. If you think of sales, certainly the, this kind of sales professionals that, uh, that I admire, folks in our business and beyond, I think you need this, this balance of kind of mission and mercenary or mission and money. You know, you think of these concepts of salespeople that, yes, there's always going to be an attainment component to a sales role, but you you want people to enjoy the mission part of, I'm doing something important, like I'm making a difference, I'm having an impact and I'm bringing value here. and my customer outcome really matters to me. It's it's a very important thing. And when you think of the challenges customers have had, there's a whole category of things that we've all looked at. Every CRM vendor and customers have gone, those are just things that can't really be solved. And AI is like, wait a sec, hold my beer. And, and AI is saying, I've got this. And, and AI is able to, the potential, and we're all still early innings of, of proving out all of the use cases, but the amount of things that we can address that we couldn't before. It's gonna to unlock tons of value for our customers. And then, you know, on the other side of the coin, we're, we're describing what's it what's it like for a salesperson in a seat. It's, it's amazing. You've now got lots and lots of fresh new reasons to reach out to people. There's tons of new things you can offer. There's amazing new feature function. There's use cases we can address. And everybody's excited to think, yeah, like there's, there's a whole new horizon of things have just been opened up.
1: Yeah, it feels like the the narrative for the last couple of years now in the sales world is has been around productivity. It's a real struggle. Mm. It is a real challenge, um, and it just not to say it's the silver bullet, but it just holds so much potential, right? Um, we released a lot of new features um, uh, at Inbound with a sales hub and also, you know, AI focused. What's a feature you're most excited about personally, Christian, for the sales org? Uh,
0: for us internally to use ourselves or for our customers?
1: Either or. <laughs> Either or, Alright. <laughs> oh, okay. Options,
0: love it, love it. There's a concept around um, guided decision making, which is kind of leans into AI agents and, and AI assistants and, and components of those two parts. So, if I kind of give you a quick worked example, the the way that all sales has always ha- run, and and this is again, I'm, I'm generalising the course, but but typically you hire new salespeople and bring them in and say, welcome, uh, you've you've got some experience previously, but we're going to teach you how we sell and how to use our systems, um, how a deal moves, how to position our product and solution, and so on. So you, you train people in their foundational training uh, for salespeople. You then. In fact, you say, OK, we think you're as ready as you can be and we're going to like send you off into the wild. And we, we put them in front of prospects and customers. And inevitably, they don't get everything right and they're not yet very good at the at the job. So they come back periodically, usually once a week, or once every few days with their manager who says, let's talk about the the things you did. Let's look at some of your some of the outcomes you've had and maybe if they're recording calls, they can listen to some calls and they can give coaching and feedback to say, oh, I can see this is this shouldn't have happened this way. And the rep goes, oh, yeah, you're right. I forgot. I'm, I'm trying to get used to the new way. And they go off again and you rinse, repeat and you keep doing that cycle of go away, make mistakes, come back. And I'll try and give you as much help as I can to reduce and remove mistakes. And they, they do it again and again and over, you know, depending on the, the role between six to 12 months eventually they get good at the job and that's not a slight on the individual it's just how it's done and we've all said that's again what i said a moment ago that just is what it is there's no way around that you just have to let people try to learn on the job and the guided cases and, and agent and assistance, the 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 vision here is you have an AI assistant who's sitting beside that new hire and the AI assistant already knows how to manage a deal, what to listen out for, what questions to ask, the way to kind of do the job. And is assisting the person live, dynamic, real time in the role where uh, as they sit down, uh, the guided assistant can say, okay, can you uh, go and find me some good fit companies I should speak with? And it will go and and trawl your, either your your database of potential prospects, I would say, these ones are the ones you should speak to today. Here's why. and Here's what you should speak to them about. And the rep is great. So now I've just short-circuited a new hire trying to figure out, how do I identify a good fit company? It's done it for me. What should I even talk to these people about? It's done it for me. And now I'm up and running and I'm starting to have the conversation. And it can scan what's happening in those conversations and based off any previous emails that have been exchanged, any notes the rep has left in the system to say, hey, based on all these things, right now, here's the next best action you should do with this with this prospect. And the rep is like, oh, great. Uh, and also it'll catch them and go, hey, it looks like you're moving to the next step of your process, but you haven't asked about budget yet. And as you know, in HubSpot sales process, that's the thing you should have done by now. So it's it's catching them and reminding them, live, dynamic. And you now have this assistant who's doing these things, um, which if you think of now, it's like having a personal private coach on every single deal, all day every day regardless of time and hours and so on and that rep is going to instead of getting two points of feedback a week in the old model from their manager they're going to be getting like probably 50 per day i don't know whatever that number becomes because they're getting continuous feedback uh, through the ai which like, it's going to exponentially improve their ability to get up to speed amazing for the customer is going to go wow all your sales are amazing they really really know what they're doing amazing for the individual for the company like there's just benefits galore um and that whole piece of that that agent assistant, um, which internally we're we're kind of our nomenclature is guided selling as we think about how to guide the individual through through these things. That's the one thing I'm internally very excited about.
1: I can see it on your expression. <laughs> You're just like ramp times are going to be halved yeah. at least. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and but it's a win-win, right? Yes, internal um, productivity gains. But to your point. The impact and the improved experience of the customer is just going to be second to none, I think. Yep. Conscious of your time, Christian, I have one last question for you Mm. because uh, let's be honest, sales and marketing aren't always 100% on the same page. We don't always agree on things. And uh, on this show, we do have quite a large marketing following. Uh, So this is your opportunity, Christian. (laughs) What is one thing you wish marketers knew about sales and, and the role?
0: It's a great question. I think the there's there's several things I could talk about. I'm going to talk about one that's kind of close several. to my heart. Just one. Kristen. Yeah, just yeah, one. just one. Just one. Um, <laughs> it, it's probably to do with what is an understandable cliche. So when you talk about salespeople, I think there's this kind of image conjures up of um, <clears throat> somebody who's like flashy and kind of is, is very demanding, and you know they. they they want to earn a bunch of money because they have this flashy lifestyle, and they're buying incredibly expensive things that they don't need, and so on. And that's kind of this cliche of that's that's what salespeople do. They're kind of annoying individuals who do all this stuff that you know people don't particularly think is is good.
1: <laughs> These are your words, not mind. <laughs> We're having
0: an honest ending here. It's good, um, but but I think you know where that stuff has been true in the past. I'm sure maybe some of your listeners could think I know a guy or a, a, a woman in my team who is exactly, exactly like that. But maybe that's true. But I would say. The salespeople, I think, have evolved massively over the. Again, I've I've been 20, 20 plus years of selling. Um, I think there's a much more. I talked touched on this mission centric part of things. Salespeople care a lot about their value and impact and what it is they do. It isn't purely a numbers. It isn't purely uh, just attaining and and kind of getting as much commission as you can. Like in hiring, as people we talk about people in 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 our teams. There's way more conversations about the value and the impact and the purpose of what people do and what salespeople do and helping their customers. And I think it's incredible. I love it. I absolutely love it. I'm I'm wired that way myself. But that's that's a big, big change. And I would say, you know, to anyone who's listening, if if you have a default setting when I described, hey, what do you think of a salesperson? What do you think? If it is that sort of the the cliched one, maybe just catch and and try and think of the people who you do know, who who you are working with. Um, are they demonstrating the other kind of other things the the, the mission side of it? I, I think there's probably um, on the motivation of salespeople too. You know, I, again, I think the salespeople that I know, it isn't that kind of uh, cliched uh, individual who's just looking to kind of party and have this kind of social life lifestyle thing. the The salespeople of today are much more mindful of their. They've got purpose around not just work stuff, but personal stuff too. And often they're people who are carrying a lot of weight, a lot of, a lot of stress and responsibility, you know, at home around earning to meet mortgage payments, medical bills, school bills, you know, all that stuff that, that we all deal with. And I think there's at times where salespeople may come across as being stressed or pushing to say, I really need more leads, more help, better leads. And some of that dynamic where it comes across as a frictional, you touched on, you know, we don't always have a full agreement those kind of frictional moments, I would just say to, to non-sales folks who listen in to, to pause and just double click and try and get beyond kind of the the, the the assumption you might leap to, which is this is just a pushy salesperson just is, is greedy and wants a bunch more leads because they want to earn a bunch of money. There's likely stuff going on there, you know, in, in the modern salesperson is someone who is, um, has a lot of things they're trying to do uh, and usually for family or for other matters and other things. So taking a pause, um, ask about the intent and try and try and get past that and see what it is. And you'll likely find there's a human being there. There's a person there who is just like you, who's like got a bunch of stresses and strains in life is trying to, trying to get by and trying to do the best for others around them uh, and is looking for help. Um, so I'd, uh, I, I'd, I'd seek to pause just to check some of that cliche and, uh, try and find the person behind it.
1: I think there's probably a lot of salespeople listening to this who are very thankful for your comment right (laughs) now. There you go. (laughs) uh, And I I agree. Um, I think marketers can take the time to get to know sales a lot more. My first role at HubSpot was in sales enablement, and it's experience that I'm extremely grateful for to have had in my role today. Uh, I think it's made me a better marketer. So I will second you on that one, Christian. Uh, And on that nice heartwarming note, uh, we will wrap it up. So... Thank you so much for sharing your insights with us, everything from what AI is going to do for the sales org to how to think about scaling sales internationally. Um, it's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Cass. Thanks for tuning in to Inside HubSpot. If you liked what you listened to and want to hear more stories, please subscribe and check out all resources in our show notes or head to hubspot.com forward slash inside hubspot. We'll catch you on the next episode.